commanded to do that, aren't we? Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, rejoice. What do you get excited about? You know, what, what stirs your heart? You know, what, what is it? You know, what makes you rejoice? You know, everybody wants to do that. I don't know of hardly anybody. I can't think of anybody that has not ever wanted to be, and I'm going to use the, the term happy, okay? People say, I want to be happy. And so that's what they're always really after, isn't it? That's really what they're really trying. So they they try different things to consume it, whether it could be illicit things, or you could think of drugs, or anything that's whatever. And it could even be good things, but if it's not in Christ, it's not a true joy, is it? And so that's what we look at today. And uh, what produces in us a joy that sometimes it just wants to make us explode. Have you ever been that way? You know, you just can't hold it in. You know, you're you're really rejoicing, and it's nice to listen to people that are really excited. You know, that they're they're joyous because you know we live in a time of cynicism, and what joy you see a lot of times is coming from a worldly manner. It's not really true joy at all, and it's like that's not joy. But what is it that you delight in? What something is that that you so delight in? What are the things that you delight in, especially in spiritual delights? What is that? Um, I will say, if you know what your joy is, you'll find out that that is what is most important in your life. What your joy is. What your joy is. That's where your treasure is. Where your treasure is, that's what's in your heart there, right? But what do you think that is most important in your life? Whatever makes you the happiest, what it does, it reveals your true values. Truly, what is it that you value the most? And of course, you know where I'm going with that, but, you know, we get excited sometimes about temporal things, and that's okay. It's good to enjoy things like that, but... It's really being excited about eternal ones because they will last. And they'll last forever, right? The thing is, we know that rejoicing is an automatic thing. That's what we want. That's what we look for. Um, have you ever thought about God rejoicing? Now, to some people, I think you guys would be well aware of, yes, God rejoices. But to some people, that would almost be a sacrilege. Oh, you can't say that. You know, God rejoicing or to put it in a, another manner like God being happy. Well, the joy of the Lord is our strength. He is the source of joy. He's the one who gave us joy. He is joy. Matter of fact, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and on and on. He is joy. And that's what's what we're dealing with in our text today. He's all about joy. He's all about His pleasures. Oh, you can't say that. Yes, pleasures. God is a God who desires to be pleased. He is a God who is eternally pleased, even though there are things that are going on in the world that He's very angry at, right? But at the same time, He's a God of pleasure. His kind of pleasure. And what we'll be looking at today is the news of how God's sovereign grace resulted in the salvation of people through a ministry of these 70 people that were selected to go out and take the gospel to them. 
And they were not professionals. They were not pastors. They were not deacons, elders. These were people that were just ordinary that went out and that preached the Gospel with power. And it was God's sovereign grace, though, that saved them. God used the Word, no matter how inadequate they were, to use the Word, the Gospel, to bring them to Christ, ultimately. Because Christ was going to be coming through there too. These guys preached the Word. And so, joy is a positive element in Christianity. What I have been dealing with in chapter Uh, well, I could say 10, but especially in chapter 9, we dealt with the cost of discipleship. And that was really the heart of that chapter so much. The cost, the price of what it is to follow Christ. You know, it can mean your life, right? Forget yourself. Deny yourselves. Take up the cross. Follow me. And so we get that through chapter 9 and even get it in, into 10 here. And he, and he tells them that I'm going to send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. I mean, that sounds like bad news, doesn't it? But that is the way that it works. And what he is going to impress upon them also is that there are great benefits of discipleship. That whole deal with the cost of discipleship, here's where it brings out the great benefit of joy. And isn't that really what everybody is after anyway? It's a joy, a true joy. So the theme of joy is not a new one. Joy is always the outcome of our salvation. And so that's what we deal with here. Joy is to characterize our lives. That's really what people are to see. Other Christians, people who are lost, they need to see the joy of the Lord being our strength. And that means no matter the circumstances, right? That doesn't govern what joy is. Those are feelings. We're talking about a true thing that comes from the Lord that's eternal. Just to give you a little glimpse of uh, some passages out of the Old Testament, for instance, that deal with joy. There are many more, but because of time's sake, I will just go to uh, some golden ones here that you've probably heard many times. Out of Psalms it says... You have made known to me the path of life. You have filled me with joy in Your presence, with eternal pleasures at Your right hand. That was a prayer of David. How about this one? They feast on the abundance of Your house. You give them drink from Your river of delights. Psalm 36.8 We drink from His river of delights. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. We've heard that one, right? If you have good desires, God planted them there, right? He will give you the desires of your heart. He made you what you are. If you're in Christ, here's another one. Zephaniah 3.17 I think this is uh, maybe Audrey's one of her favorite ones. I think it's one of Carolyn's favorite. Probably Penny's too. As soon as I say it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. That is powerful, isn't it? I think probably around here somewhere we had something that was it used to be in our other building. Anyway, that's Zephaniah 3.17. It's incredible. So let us listen to the Word today. Let's learn further 
what true biblical joy is, what God has given us here, desires and pleasures and joy, and it's all something that God has designed for you. You say, man, I'm enjoying this, but I'm not so sure this is right. I'm enjoying it too much. Do you enjoy worshiping Christ? That's the ultimate, isn't it? And then we look at the sovereign God, and you can't help but rejoice as we look at this text. So let's read the text. Let's stand on God's Word. We're in Luke 10. We're at verse 17. Seventy return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. And He said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly. And the Holy Spirit said, I praise You, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in Your sight. All things have been handed over to Me by My Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Father, we ask that... Your Spirit guide us into the truth today as we look at something very precious. You're speaking to us in Your Word right here. Your Word is what is powerful and has authority over our lives. And as we look at this, we learn a little bit more about the character of God, the character of You, Lord. And it is amazing to see what joy is about. Help us to learn that. Help us to carry that throughout the days sometimes that are gray, that are wintry, through the days in our lives that are tough to handle, and still yet we can take this statement about joy and and know that it's there always. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we were in chapter 9 for quite some time and we get into chapter 10. Chapter 10, because it was a couple of weeks ago where we were at there and we actually covered a big section and we have another pretty big section today also. But that was dealing with the 70. 70 disciples that are sent out. Now there are the 12. Then there are now 70 who are going to be sent. And I would most likely think that this would be the other disciples. You think of the twelve, the apostles, the twelve. Now it's seventy. Now the twelve could have been with them, but I, I'm going to take them separately if, if we can. It's it's okay. It doesn't matter either way. But those seventy followers of Christ, just ordinary people. Of course, the the twelve were ordinary, weren't they? 
we spent uh, a little bit on the uh, how ordinary they were. But these 70 were sent out by the Lord and I can imagine that these people felt very inadequate as they're out to preach the Gospel. And Jesus, they have been seeing, they've been walking with Him and they've been traveling. They've seen what He has preached. They've preached the Kingdom of the Gospel, or He has. They've learned it, but now it's on them. And what they're going to have to have is the authority and the power of God to be able to deliver the message, the same message that He had, and it to actually change lives. It's all going to be on Him because it's not going to be them that does it. So they're uh, they're returning back to Him now. So we we covered that last time, those first 16 verses. 70 come back to report to Jesus. I'm telling you, they are elated. I mean, they are jubilant. They have been a part of ministry and they've seen results. I like to see results. I like to see people come to Christ. Don't see it very much. It's not very often. And I know the Lord is going to bring who He's going to bring to Him. But you like to be a part of it, don't you? One of the greatest joys is whenever somebody is brought to Christ by the power of His Word and the Spirit. So uh, they experienced far beyond what they expected. And they come back and they're joyous. And it says, the 70 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the Demons are subject in your name. I mean, they're giving him the glory. They realize that it's in his power. It was in his name. In his name is dealing with all that's about the Lord. That's what the idea of the name of God is dealing with. So, joyous people, and these demons are subject to us. Wouldn't you be amazed? I mean, if that just happened once, you go, wow. I mean, I can't believe this. I mean, I've seen Jesus do it. But us? Now, you know, they're not little gods or anything like that, but they do have the power of God in them as all Christians do. Believers have the power of God. I believe this is an ultimate evidence of power and authority in their lives. The Word of God is the power and authority, but when you have something that is visible to people, it makes it more impacting, doesn't it? And that's what Christ did. He healed people. The reason was is to show that His Word is true. And of course, that is what is happening in in this case. Now, if you were to go back to chapter 9, verse 37, um, there was this... uh, uh, Let's let's go ahead and read it. It's down through 41, really. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, uh, uh, that's... uh, After the transfiguration, okay? Peter, James, John, Jesus. The next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and throws him into a convulsion with foaming at his mouth, and only with difficulty does it leave him mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And then Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving, perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And of course, then He healed him, cast out the demon. This was the nine. The three had gone up with the transfiguration. There were nine left. These are the apostles. And what couldn't they do? They didn't deliver the demon out of the 
the boy. And we see the son begging Jesus to do it. So, we know that Jesus has the power. These evidently don't. But they were actually told in that same chapter as they went out that they would be doing those things. And they had done it. But maybe they relied on their power a little bit more. Maybe they didn't pray. Maybe they, didn't, maybe they were getting self-confident. Don't know. Probably some of that happens. We as uh, even Christians in the Lord, we sometimes get overconfident, right? Uh, yes, we do. We forget about the power of the Lord. Well, I think this would be interesting. That was group A. The nine couldn't do it. But these 70, who are not the apostles, come back. They're rejoicing because they were even able to do the thing that squad A couldn't do. (laughs) I think that's quite the joy. I'm not sure they're really making fun of them there, but it, it is proof to them that they had authority in Jesus' name and they had a cause for great joy. Now the authority of Christ we know has been given to Him from the Father. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, as Jesus trained people, disciples, followers to go give the Gospel out, He was going to have to give them power also. But we see in Ephesians 1, verse 20 and 21, it's talking about the strength of Christ's might, which he brought, or God's might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in the age, but also in the one to come. And so there is Christ. He's given this kind of power. And I mean, this is real power. This is God power. You go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. Speaking about the power that God gave to His Son. And talking about the resurrection of Christ in verse 21, we move to 22 and it says, Who is at the right hand of God? That's the position, the seat of authority, the right hand. Having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to Him. When the cross was accomplished, the death of Christ on the cross for the ones that He died for and then He arose, showed God's power and then of course He ascended and sat down at the right hand of the Father. That is power and that is authority. It was given to Him. He was completely obedient and He did the job that was set out long before the foundation of the world happened. And so we get the idea of authority. We could move into many, many verses dealing with that, but we'll keep on going here. Uh, We go back to our Luke passage. And so we see the 70 returning, talking about the demons being subject. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. What is the meaning here? And I will tell you, this was quite a struggle as I... uh, read and thought about this and read a lot of commentaries. A lot of commentaries on this. Give me another one. I will tell you that it is a little bit of a difficult um, passage 
for the fact of when it, when is this? When did it happen? There's no doubt that he saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Of course, uh, one of the times was the very first time whenever he was kicked out of heaven. Satan was, and a third of the angels came the demons, right? And it could be that, and many commentators suggest it, I'm not going to say yes or no. I think it could take in a lot of things. After I was all done with it, I could see how it could be all throughout time. But there is a specific uh, thought here, I think, to bring it into present time. You could take it at the cross where he defeated Satan and the demons and ascended into heaven. That's a great triumph there, isn't it? Satan falls there. And of course, uh, we know that um, in the future... Uh, Christ will come back and uh, he will conquer the nations and you know bind uh, uh, Satan and we know at the very uh, very last battle there that uh, Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire and all the demons right and so there's a there's a falling all the way through uh, definitely could be that very first one but it could be through time and it could be even right then at that time when it was happening. And so I throw all of those out to, to say to you, usually I, I will give you just one and not a whole bunch to choose from. But it, like I say, you can look at some of the best commentators and they, they'll suggest what they think, but they'll put a lot of these in that I just talked about. But I think one that's fascinating and very interesting here, this whole verse is, is very informative. Um, it's like I saw when you 70 were out there delivering people from demons, Satan, and the power that they had, and you commanded that devils would come out and they immediately departed. I saw that. Of course, it's only in the power of God. Only God can do this. But it was quickly as a flash of lightning it comes from the heavens. That's kind of one thought. I followed you on your mission and I watched as you were triumphant. So there it's taking it even into a present tense. That's kind of interesting to think about. Satan was being beaten right there as they were casting demons out. And so it can take in that, that element. I was with you as you preached and you delivered people. People became saved. I saw Satan fall. I saw Satan's kingdom just crumbling and falling. Being destroyed. Coming out of the grip of Satan. One soul at a time. So, as we preach the Word, even right here amongst us, that God's Word is always triumphant, isn't it? Christ is always triumphant. And as we continue on in our walk with Him, Satan is, has already been beaten at the cross, but he's being beaten because he would like to beat you up, wouldn't he? But... He cannot destroy us. That has, you know, that's been taken care of. The cross did all of this, but it was like, you know, Jesus, not only from uh, eternity past, has seen that, and he knows that Satan doesn't have the power 
to defeat God. Matter of fact, it's only given to him to do what he can do. Remember uh, in the book of Job, what kind of power was that? That was pretty amazing power, but it was granted to him to even do that. Satan cannot do anything except that the Lord granted to him to do it. That's anything. And God can take him out in in a moment's time. And uh, I know whenever I first read that from Erwin Lutzer dealing with you know our, our enemy, um, it, it brought the scriptures out that I, I, I should have known. You know, I, I knew that God was much more powerful than Satan, but when you really see that he is just a pawn in God's hand. And God can do whatever He wants and allow Him to do whatever He wants. Even though God never sins, He still is allowing, sending out Satan to do the work. But we know that God is in sovereign control all throughout this. Satan has already fallen. He is beaten. He is a, but we don't see that right now. We see him just flailing away like he never has throughout history in the time that we live in now. It's, it's amazing what's going on, isn't it? In our world. Just for the fact of we have more people and more technology. More ways for people to sin and Satan uses every bit of it. But Jesus knew all along Satan has been defeated. He will be defeated at the cross. He will be defeated where everybody will see that thrown into the lake of fire. And that's it, right? Mm-hmm. And we look to that. So Satan, you know, he, he knew you know, in the very beginning all the way through that he saw that he's a defeated enemy. He has no power. He has no authority except for what God gives him to get the job done. So, Jesus continues on. He says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. That's authority. That's protection. And I think in one way, especially back at that time, uh, there definitely could have been trampling on serpents and scorpions there and not getting hurt. Uh, there's a literal dimension of that. There was a real danger posed in the time that they lived in. <laughs> Still here today, but uh, of course in the way that they traveled and such, um, they could be running into those things constantly. Out in the deserts and over the rocks and such, different places they would go. He says, I'm going to protect you. There is not going to be any kind of dangers that's going to hinder you. So it it goes beyond, though, of literally speaking of the stinging animals and the literal biting that they can do. He says, I'm giving you authority over them, but what is it? I'm giving you protection. And protection in the spiritual realm. You just went up against the enemy. The enemy got beat. I saw that. I know that. This is part of the plan. We're on the winning side, folks. God protects us. It doesn't mean He takes everything out of our way where everything's all comfortable. We, we know that. And it wasn't comfortable for them either. But He says, I'm here. I'm watching over you. I'm going to take care of you. And so that is the idea. That there's a tax that come from a fallen world, isn't there? Attacks constantly. Let's look at 1 John 4 4. Just reminder verses. You guys know these verses. Probably heard them many times. Then again, you go, oh, I forgot that one. But it's always good to retain these kind of passages 
For whenever we have the enemy come up against us, the world, flesh, the devil, what do we do? Well, remember this. 1 John 4, 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. That says a lot, doesn't it? There's no need to fear. There's all sorts of people against Christians, against everything we believe in, against the Gospel. That's the whole thing. It's really about who Christ is. That's really who they hate. That's really who the demons and Satan hate. Greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. Let's look at Romans 16.20. Great encouragement here. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. This is even after the resurrection. See, this is during the time that Paul was writing to the Romans as he finishes his letter up here. And he says, the God of peace. One of these days, we're not going to be in wars and battles against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We'll have peace. God is going to soon crush Satan under your feet. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. Does this make you excited? Does this make you joyful? I really feel like I'm on a winning team. Matter of fact, we are. Second Thessalonians 3, 3 says, But the Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. That's even stated in his prayer. The Our Father prayer. The, they only call it the, what the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer, the Model Prayer. But here we have it here. here. Here's what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians who were under quite the hardship. And he says, the Lord will strengthen you. There's evil men out there, he says in the previous verse, but the Lord is faithful and He'll strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Now, we go back to our Luke passage. We get into verse 20. So that's the idea. You have power over the enemy and nothing's going to injure you. I'm protecting you. Nevertheless, and here's the whole statement. Here's the idea of this first section. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. There we go. Even with all the things they had done, they had done some mighty things and they were really rejoicing in that. He says, I'll tell you what, it is quite something, isn't it? That's really not what this is all about. I'll tell you what your real joy is. He's turning his, uh, Jesus is turning the attention here, uh, the disciples' attention to uh, a better basis for their joy. If it's, if our joy is in the things that we do, and even if it's ministry, if my joy isn't just getting up here and teaching and preaching, which I really love to do, uh, even as inadequate as I can be, I love to do it. It's what I called to do. I want to do it. 
can't wait to do it because it's really the, the privilege of studying it throughout the week and then being able to present what Christ has here in His teaching in this passage that we're dealing with. But much more than that, my joy really is not in what I'm doing. My joy is in my God. It, my joy is in Christ. And that's where I find my fulfillment. If I find fulfillment in my job, uh, chances are that's not going to last forever. If I find um, fulfillment in teaching and preaching or playing music, I've got a problem. Because, I mean, yes, I, I like to do that. I enjoy it. It's, but it's only because it's come from God. Whatever that I have is coming from Him. And so all the glory to Him. And so that's the idea. He's really getting across your joy is in Christ. Your joy is because you have salvation. That is what you rejoice about. No matter how many things you're going to be doing too. And these 70, who knows what else is going to happen out of this. And then the apostles and the ministry that goes out. And all that Paul does. Well, we know that when you take the Gospel out, what happens? You either wind up in jail or you, you get stoned to death, right? And that's what happened all throughout Paul's ministry. And the same thing happened to the twelve. These seventy who probably were many other ones going out, the early church doing the same thing. They were getting persecuted. All at the same time, they go out with great joy whenever they preach the Gospel, regardless of how people take them. So we are to rejoice in our salvation. So it starts with that. This This whole idea is... It's about the disciples' joy. Jesus says that. And He says their names are written or recorded in heaven. Interesting there. Um, These guys were caught up in the spiritual realm. No doubt we would have too. And it has been a great thing that God has done there through them. But the rejoicing, because they have a relationship with Christ gets us back into the mode of what it's all about. An eternal relationship with God. Uh, the joy of the Christian should not be primarily in the destruction of Satan's hold and power over what our lives used to be or other people's lives or what's happening in the world uh, if it seems to be going good and all that, but we belong to God. We are His. It's clear in the Bible that God predetermined before the foundation of the world who would be saved. And because of that, it pleased Him. He already had this predetermined. And that is truly amazing. Now we're talking about uh, names that were written in heaven before the people were ever born. Before we were ever born, did you know that you were written in the book? Think of Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. That really (laughs) ought to give you tingling joy. Actually, in verse 2, I'll start at 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress, tribulation, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who was found written in the book, will be rescued. 
all the people that are written in the book, He rescues them. He saves them. He delivers them, right? And that's the people uh, of God, the ones that He chose. And then He talks about everlasting life, them coming to uh, getting their glorified bodies and such. Uh, Go to Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. And this comes from a negative sense here. All who dwell on the earth, just before Christ comes back for His judgment, all who dwell on the earth will worship Him, speaking of the Antichrist, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world. In the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Wow, that's a mouthful, isn't it? It's, he said the people who will worship the Antichrist are the ones who were not written in the Lamb's book of life. That was written from the foundation of the world. Wow. That's, that's spine-chilling in a joyous way, isn't it? That He would have His people who believed in Him, they were already there. If they're not there, they will follow uh, anything that's against God. And so, um, I think in chapter 17, verse 8, same thing again. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. People will worship him. They will be given over because they never were written in the book. If you're written in the book, you will be saved. If you're not written in the book, you will not be saved. That's getting into some very deep stuff. But all it is, you just take it, just literally, it's coming right out at you, and we'll take a few more verses to look at. And uh, these are. this is a section that really has always given me joy because it shows Christ's plan and, and God's plan, what the whole idea is, and it's uh, dealing with salvation. And we'll get into that a little more. That's the disciples' joy. He says, I want you to rejoice this. It's your name. It's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. By the way, that whole foundation thing. Look in, I think it's Second Peter, chapter uh, should be chapter one. Peter, it's it's Timothy, sorry. Now if I turn there and it's not there, I'm not seeing very good lately. 2 Timothy chapter 1, um, talking about the power of God and the Gospel in verse 8, and talking about this power of God, verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose, and grace, which was granted us in Jesus, Christ Jesus, from all eternity. 
but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's when it came into place. But from the foundation of the world, again, that's remarkable. Before we ever were here, before we could even do anything or say the right thing, He already wrote us in the book. And He can't take anybody out of the book. So, Jesus now has joy. Not that He didn't have before. We go back to our Luke 10. And now, what He's going to do is be the model for what rejoicing is. He says, I want you to rejoice because your names have been recorded in heaven. And at that very time, He, that's Jesus. Jesus rejoices, folks. He's rejoicing all the time. But don't stop at that rejoice. What's the next word? Greatly. He rejoiced greatly. I think that's immense. A truly great rejoicing. Exuberant. Overflowing with joy. Agaliasto. To be thrilled with joy. Was Jesus happy? I think you could say that. <laughs> Tremendous joy. He said, what's the deal? He's telling them that they need to be rejoicing. Names are written in heaven. Names are in the book. He's rejoicing greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise You, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in Your sight. That is a load. This is awesome. This passage is really getting into what I think is amazing. We get to see that Jesus is rejoicing. He's really a man of sorrows because it's not going to be too many months later that He's going to have to go through the crucifixion. And He knows that. He's already told him that. But his, and he, his face is set like flint to go to Jerusalem. He knows what's there. But we get to get in on the inside here and see some remarkable things that no man can understand unless it be opened up by the Holy Spirit to you. If you can't understand these things, then say, God, give me your understanding through your Spirit what this means because these are deep things. And it's going in so far. Sometimes you have to be careful how far you go. As, as Calvin has always stated, but you go as far as you can with what has been revealed here. And so we can see that He has revealed things to certain people. And to other people, He has not revealed it. He has kept it a secret. And you can say, is that fair? All you have to, and what I tell people when they always say that, let's go back and say, do we deserve anything? Anything? No. It's all by what? Grace. Not of anything that we can do or say. Right? So with that thought, knowing that also that people are depraved 
and wicked. They hate God until Christ comes in and changes their life. Jesus knows this. That's why He's so exuberant when He sees a soul saved. Because they were written before the foundation of the world and there He is right there and they're being changed. This is what was to happen. It's not that He's surprised. Oh wow, it really did happen. You know, He knows it's going to happen. But what kind of joy would you have when you set yourself to do something, you're going to do it and then it's accomplished and you knew that you were not going to give up until you get it done. Don't you feel a satisfaction? Don't you feel it's a joy when it's something that you really like to do? Alright, well, here we go. The go- aren't you glad that gospel is not grasped solely by poor, uh, I mean, uh, uh, by, by smart people? Okay, if, if it were for smart people, some of you might have an IQ of, how far can your IQ go? 180? 200? I don't know. Let's say you had uh, like the elite, the topmost IQ. Does that mean but you can figure this out? You can figure out the secrets of the kingdom of God and get into it. Well, of course not. We know that. Or what about people who are uh, not only intelligent, but um, you know, of course, they're, they're very wise, let's say. Uh, matter of fact, they may have uh, much influence on society. They might be considered to be a great person in the world, high and lifted. What if God only picked the, quote, best people in the world? What if He picked out the most intelligent? He didn't do it that way. Uh, And so when He says that He hides it from the, uh, the intelligent, the wise and the intelligent, the fact is, is that a high IQ actually, or people who think they're smart, they now have a hindrance. That hindrance is their own way to reason and figure out things. And I can get this thing done because you know they are smart. They know how to do it. They don't need any help. God does not reveal to them that that you know is there some kind of merit in being stupid then you know if I'm stupid then that, is there any merit in that no not at all matter of fact if he says okay if he only reveals it to the ones who are not intelligent and wise well then who would he reveal it to and say well that do that would be the ignorant and that would mean all you who are Christians sitting here today would be ignorant and I don't think we relish in that either. Matter of fact, it does take intelligence. It takes a mind to think on these things, right? He doesn't give us the word to read and study uh, so uh, you know we can just be smart, but He opens it up to us. We may not be the most intelligent, but we have a mind enough to know, okay, the Gospel is this, and as He reveals it to you, you now can understand spiritual things. Um, it's, it's realizing that you're totally dependent upon God. You don't have enough in you to be able to do anything to get to heaven. Nobody does. And so you can think of all the great leaders in the world. and There aren't many, are there? Down through the history of mankind, uh, most of them have uh, maybe a legacy that is not so pretty when you really look at it. And Of course, that uh, depravity of mind... Uh, man and, and his mind goes is um, 
that can that can fool people. It can fool themselves. So what we have here is a person who was blind, a person who is aware of his blindness, is ready to have his eyes opened. God is the one who opens the eyes. He even is the one who makes us aware that we're blind spiritually. So this man of sorrows that we see in Isaiah as he was living here on the earth is one who is rejoicing. At that time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. Here's God rejoicing. Folks, I'm going to tell you, this is a pearl of great price here. This is a jewel dropped in the middle of the Gospels. Right here, where Jesus is is rejoicing. He could only rejoice greatly because this was part of God's plan. That these 70 were the ones that God had chosen. An eternal plan. That their names were written in heaven before the foundation of the world. And here it is. And he has just seen Satan being beaten or beaten again as he was taken out of the people and they were delivered. And he says, I want you to rejoice. And here's the reason why. I've Those things are hidden to some, but they're revealed to you. You're in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus is rejoicing greatly. Jesus. Have you ever thought of Him being excited? Jubilant? Rejoicing? To see it happen at that time and to know these are the 70 that we chose to put in the kingdom of heaven right here and others and others it was a reality, a consummation here. Jubilation is exploding in Jesus' heart. Can God rejoice? We just see it. We rejoice greatly. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the, He is a joyous God. And you can say, yeah, but He's angry at the wicked every day. That's absolutely right. Can He do both? Yeah, He can. He does. There's a reality here that's happening. Look at John chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus, speaking to the apostles, tells them about the... uh, um, They're the branch. I am the vine. You are the branches, right? Gives them... uh, And this is the night before He's going to be crucified. He gives them great wisdom here. He shares with them this. And he says, you're the branches. By the way, you if you are really in me, you will be a branch forever. Verse 11, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy, Jesus' joy, may be in you. And that your joy may be made full. How would you like to have been told by Jesus saying, I'm the vine and you are the branches. You are in me. We're connected. Right? That's a relationship of believers in Christ. In the tree. In the vine. The reason I do this 
so that my joy may be in you. And that your joy be made full. Look in John 17, 13. He gets away and he goes and prays. And one of the greatest prayers in all the Bible, John 17. It's Jesus saying His prayer, interceding for the church. And even us today here, get to see inside a prayer that Jesus actually said before He was going to be crucified. You look at um, verse 13. But now I come to you, Father, Jesus is saying, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. What does Jesus want? He wants His joy to be made full full, abundant in His people. And He's already said, like in verse 6, I have manifested Your name to the men whom You gave Me. And out of the world, they were Yours, and You gave them to Me. And they have kept Your Word. The Father gave the Son His the, the twelve there. And of course, one of them, we know, was uh, Judas. And he is not a believer. But there's a reason why he... Uh, had him in with this, but this is all about uh, Christ giving glory to God and Him being restored back to the glory, and then He intercedes and says, "I want them to have full, abundant joy." I'm praying that this is Jesus, the great mediator, the high priest, praying for us. Who else would you want to pray for you? Right. By the way, the Holy Spirit also prays for us, as in Romans 8. Okay, it says through the Holy Spirit. How could He rejoice so profoundly? How could He have this kind of jubilation? And we see that it's in the, the very Spirit of God here. And as we move on in our uh, Luke 10, now we are at... where we can see why is it that he's praying so profusely? Well, you have a sovereign God here. He's a sovereign Father. It's the joy that's in the sovereignty of the Father that he has. I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, Lord King, He is sovereign, totally in control, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. Okay, we've seen that. Joy in the sovereignty of the Father. Jesus has joy because He knows the Father is sovereign. So is Jesus. But What was happening here is that it had been hidden. This truth had been hidden and revealed to others. It had been revealed to these men. Our Lord's favorite truth is the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God and he has a purpose, and he has never overruled, and every plan and everything that he has done from before the foundation of the world will be done. And there's a joy also in the Father's good pleasure, because it says at the end of verse 21, Yes, Father, for this way was well pleasing in your sight. The way that you have done this whole salvation plan, it was well pleasing. The Father is pleased. 
joy in the Father's good pleasure. That word well-pleasing, it's a word, I think it's rather interesting, eudokia. E-U means good, or uh, dakia means it, it gives Him pleasure. Uh, good pleasure. Whatever He purposes, whatever He intends, whatever He desires, it's all going to come through. Every last bit of it. Every ounce the way that He desired to work it, it's going to be done that way. And it pleases God. God is a God of pleasure. That's the kind of pleasure we want. We want God's pleasure. We don't want the pleasure of the world. It's fickle. But in true pleasure, God's pleasure, you can go through this life and then eternity being in pleasure and joy. And God's sovereignty and salvation is totally from God. And we can say, yes, but I, I said yes to God. Yes, you did, as R.C. Sproul has always said. Yes, you said yes. That, and that, that's, that's good. But why did you say yes? Because before you wouldn't have said yes. What is it? Why is it? Because of your intelligence? No, he says, I hide it from the intelligence. Is it because of you're a little bit smarter than somebody else? Maybe you're a little more privileged than somebody else? No, sometimes quite the opposite. He likes to use the people that are not mighty and not noble. He likes to use people that are really the little guys that nobody knows about. For the most part, that's who he uses. Does he, does he bring forth uh, people of, of wealth and intelligence? Yeah. Abraham. Matter of fact, throughout the Old Testament, you will see many men who were actually rich. He uses that. Most of the time, it goes the other way. Turn <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Now, we're going to hit this really hard, uh, real quick. We've, we have a lot of machine gun verses, folks. And these are some of my favorite verses. This is what makes me rejoice. Now, my time says 58 minutes, and I, I can tell you that I'll probably go over an hour a little bit. Will you guys forgive me? Thank you. I know you always do. <laughs> but here we go. It's going to be machine gun. 1 Corinthians 20, uh, 1.26 For I consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. It's all about glory. God is going to use the people that you'd least expect. Who did he go to whenever he went to Israel? And, and did he go straight to Jerusalem and start picking out the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the religious leaders? No. Who did he go to? He went to fishermen, and he went to people that the agrarians and, and most of the people that he ministered to were those. The ones who despised him were the ones who were the elite. They were the intelligent. So, God. That's the way that he works, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. In John chapter 1, verse 12 through 13, and this is going to uh, 
mount up. Guilt is more and more of his plan. Because this is what Jesus is rejoicing about. But as many as received him, as many as received Christ, matter of fact, the verse before it says he came to his own, those of his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. He said, that's it, because I believed in his name. Yes, you had faith. But verse 13 says it wasn't your will that got you saved. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Free will. That doesn't get you saved. But of God. You can say, ooh, you know, how about, did you decide to come into the world physically? I think I'll be born now, and I'm going to be born to my mom and dad, the Heltons there in Elton, Missouri. That's why you had nothing to do with that, did you? Salvation is the same way. So, but I said yes, yes, you did. Why did you say yes? Because God awoke you out of death. Ephesians two says you were dead spiritually. Amazing passage. Go to James chapter one, verse eighteen. You guys have been through these many times, but these just rejoice me. You're talking about the will. Well, it's the will of man. It's it's my will. It's my free will. Where did that come from? Did it come from the Bible? Of course not. But it sure came from the world. You said, well, I have free will to do whatever I want. Do you really? In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth, or He made us be born again, by the word of truth. That's how He brings you. So that He would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. We go to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Faith is a gift. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. No matter what we do, no matter what we say, no matter who we are, it's all grace. Got to love that word. Philippians 1.29, did you see that? What about faith? Faith was granted to you. So, But I had faith, right? Yeah, you do. How did you get it? Did you just work it up? Smart enough, right? Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted graced, gifted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. It has been granted to you to believe, to have faith. He gave it to you. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that. Right here in Philippians it says that. That's amazing. It's amazing. You go on and you keep seeing the same thing. Look at Acts chapter 11, 18. We're just not pulling out one verse or so here, are we? We're looking at many scriptures that show and back up our Luke 10 passage that we're dealing with today. 11.18 You have Gentiles becoming believers. When they heard this, the Gospel, they quieted down and glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also, the repentance that leads to life. You say, yes, I repented. What is the kingdom of God? What message? What, what is the gospel message? Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Believe. Repent. 
changing your not only your mind, but your your whole life has changed. There's a repentance. You're sorry for your sins. And he says that right there, they were granted repentance. It came from God. They glorified Him because their faith came from God, their repentance came from God, and you know what that does to mankind's uh, pride? Just blows Him down to the ground, doesn't it? There's nothing left. There's nothing that I can offer God. Bingo. That's where you're at your best. You realize, I have nothing to offer God. Only what He has given me. Uh, Turn to 2 Timothy 2.25. We've got to go quicker. Got to make this come across, right? 2.25 says, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. There we go. Again, He grants that. Uh, let's go into John 6. John 6 is an incredible chapter dealing with that. This was a chapter that was about uh, the bread of life, feeding the 5,000 such the next day. And then uh, in John 6.37 it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And so that message is given to everybody. And all the ones who come to Him, guess what? That's the ones who were written in the Lamb's Book of Life. They will come to Him. And what does Jesus say? I will not certainly cast out. So there's the idea. We, we make a calling to all people. We don't know how they're going to answer, but the thing is, if they come to Christ, I mean, if, they, if they're desiring Him, He will certainly not cast out. He says, come aboard. Look in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. There's a guarantee. If the Father, unless the Father who sends me draws him, he draws them to Christ. We look at verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me. How about verse 65? And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. This is the thing that Jesus was excited about when they were coming to the, the, the Gospel. Coming to Christ. Um, Ephesians 1, verse 11. Aren't these joyous verses? He's the one that caused you to have that desire. Verse 11, also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined, predetermined, according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. Is God in control of salvation? Every bit of it. Does this give you reason to rejoice? Take Romans 8.29. These are just a few verses, guys. I'm telling you, it's just a few, but it is. There's more, much more to this. Romans eight twenty nine. We know that at verse twenty eight. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Look at this: for those whom He foreknew, had a relationship with, is the idea to know, 
to know intimately. That's the idea. It is not the, the English meaning that people think. Well, he looked through the annals of time. He saw that we were going to be good people and come to him because we were good and said the right thing and said yes. And he says, I'm choosing them. That takes the whole thing away because it's not by anything that we have done. We've already seen it. And it's because of His will. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. That means to be predetermined. Praharazo, to be become conformed to the image of His Son. There's the whole purpose of it all. To be conformed to Christ. That. And anybody who doesn't want to be conformed to Christ, they won't be. They don't have to worry about it. So that He would be the firstborn or the preeminent among many brethren. These whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called in time and space, He justified. He declared righteous and those whom He justified, He also glorified. That's all past tense, by the way. In God's eyes, it's been done. In our eyes, it still is to be done as far as the glorification. But you all are justified if you're in Him. Uh, we look at chapter 9, or, uh, 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 9, verse 11, and you can say, yeah, but, 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 but for though the twins, remember Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand. And not because of works, but because of Him who calls. It's all God. So we move on down a little bit further. Look at verse 16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And then he uses the idea of Pharaoh and such. Wow. How did I ever get where I'm at? It was all God. Amen. That's why you can praise Him and be joyous. So, aren't we glad that God does not choose on the basis of intelligence because I'm good enough, better than my neighbor, wealth, religiosity, influence. He reveals Himself mostly to the non-noble, the non-mighty. They have nothing to offer God. So it's not about intellectual power. Nothing wrong with it, but... You can be an intelligent as Einstein and not figure out the kingdom of God. By the way, quite an intelligence that he had, right? But he rejected Jesus Christ. We're never going to know about that kingdom unless he shows it to us. You can have a room full of scientists in a room but they can never find that inner kingdom unless God opens it up. Um, Matthew 11, 25 and 26, I don't have enough time, but again, he's saying the same thing. He's talking about the infants, the, the babes. You did reveal them to babes. The ones who realize that they're totally dependent on Him. They're, they're humble in the sense that there's no achievement, there's no education, there's no intelligence, no wisdom, there's nothing that a, an infant can offer God, right? Or, 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 or offer to, to, to pay their way into life, just life, right? So He takes the babes and the infants and such and gives us a picture of what it is spiritually. Uh, that's a, in a humble 
humble manner. We could never understand the things of God except for 1 Corinthians 2.14. And here is... We were here earlier in this area. 1 Corinthians 2.14. And here it is about a natural man. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. And it talks about the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. It was put into us. And that's the only way that we can understand these precious truths of the Gospel. And it's to be given. to every... Get that word out. Get that good news out. Because they can be saved from their sins and they can be saved to God and be declared righteous. Go back to Luke and we'll finish it up. Are you ready? And he says, verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. The Father gives His children to Him. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. Nobody really knows who Christ is except the Father. And who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And those who He reveals and puts it into their heart, they are changed and their hearts are softened. And then we get into the very last section. This is greater joy than the Old Testament saints. Turning to the disciples then after saying that this is this is why we greatly rejoice, people. The sovereignty of God, what we just exclaimed there. I didn't try to say, oh, let's go into predestination today. It's right there. And it's Jesus saying it Himself. I, we reveal this to some and to some we don't. You can say that's not fair. If we want fairness, none of us go into the kingdom of God. Why would He choose anybody? Nobody deserves anything of that. That's how we have to look at it. And then you can say, I am rejoicing. Turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. Not only to them, it extends out to all believers. What you have heard, what you have just seen today in this text that we've been at, even the Old Testament saints that were believers did not know these things in the way that we do now. We can look back at the cross. They were looking to the cross. It was kind of fuzzy. But they're saved the same way we are, the cross. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them. It hadn't happened yet. And to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. They still they didn't even get the idea of the resurrection. The apostles didn't even get it till after it was over, did they? Blessed are the eyes which see what you do. He rejoiced in this blessing, didn't he? In the fact that the Lord rejoices in blessings that has been given to us and most of all salvation. Um, the kings of old with all their power and their authority. We can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 again and go there. He didn't reveal it to them. But there were many believers that were, that were given that too. In Hebrews 11, for instance, verse 13, verse 40, there's Old Testament saints who did not see these things. They couldn't understand it. The things in which angels long to look. And He's revealed the salvation to us. If that doesn't give us joy, nothing will. There's a joy inexpressible. I leave with this one verse. And it's right at 12 o'clock. <laughs> First Peter 1.8 And I close with this and prayer. 
Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice. Remember, Jesus greatly rejoiced in the salvation of them with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Is that you? Let's pray. Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for Your power of Your Word. It is incredible. And only the people that You want to understand Your truth will. The other ones will despise You and hate You and do everything against You in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we say thanks for the protection and the guidance that You give us constantly. Thank You for the deep things of God. We know that we're not intelligent enough to even understand what that is, but to open up the treasures of heaven and to reveal some of these things. And it will take eternity to understand all of these things, which means it will be a joy every day, every moment, every nanosecond that we have, Lord. We will be rejoicing, praising You for what all You have done and continue to do and will do for eternity. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.